So who in here is a movie buff? Who loves movies? Who likes watching movies? Right? Okay. How many of you have seen the new Barbie movie? Honest opinion? Okay. Did we like it? Was it all right? Yeah, it was okay. Okay. How about Oppenheimer? Is that how you say it? The nuclear bomb guy, right? Did anybody see that? Did anybody see them together? That was a real funny, I think, right? They were showing at all these drive-ins together, right? We are here pulling our own drive-in movie, drive-in feel for August at the movies. And if you've not been here when we've done this series, we like to look at cultural highlights that give us spiritual insights. And so we choose movies that throughout the movie or in portions of the movie have spiritual or Jesus themes that we can run into and have conversations about. Because here's the reality. When we do this series, we think of three different things inside of this series. The first one is we want to see the creativity of God on display. We just want to have fun looking at some really talented uh, people that build these movies. We have popcorn out. We're just going to have fun saying, look at what God has done through people and how we can appreciate that and see God in that, right? The second thing is throughout all of these movies, we're going to see the gospel of God on display. We are going to pull out themes, we're going to pull out ideas, we're going to pull out thoughts and say, how does that apply to Jesus, the gospel, who he is and what he's all about? Then lastly, I believe it's a discipleship conversation. I believe it's a discipleship conversation that if you're a parent in the room, a grandparent, you're around kids at all, or even yourself, these conversations ought to spark further conversations that in a lot of movies that we watch, it's a great opportunity to sit next to your kid and ask questions and process with them what they're learning and how they're navigating maybe what's being taught in that movie. And so in each of these movies, we provide a little like family guide, series guide in the back, just a half sheet of paper with some questions, some activities, some things to think about as you kind of post watching the movie and post the Sunday going into the week. Now, we look at four different movies, and we've looked at two already. We're going to look at one today and one next week. The first week, we looked at a movie called The Bad Guys, which is absolutely hilarious. If you have a family, you should watch it. It's a great movie. And we looked at what does it mean to go good? What does it mean to go good and pursue good in this life? Last week, we looked at a movie called Wonder. And Wonder, right, we looked at and said, what does it mean to choose kinds? What does it mean to actually live in an effort to be kind, to run into kindness, and what is the undertones of that, and how do we do that? Next week, to prep you, okay, if you haven't seen this movie yet, you should see it, Spider-Man Far From Home, okay? Now, I, I hear that there's some spoiler alerts, so you might have to go back a few Marvel movies, watch those, and then get into this. Whatever you have to do to get to this movie, do it, okay? But we're going to look at planning for the unexpected, and the reality is when we follow Jesus and say yes to Jesus, there are going to be things that are unexpected, things that pop up, things that we do not anticipate. What does it look like to follow Jesus into the unexpected? But today, we're going to look at a movie called Just Mercy. Just Mercy. How many of you have seen Just Mercy before? Yeah, a good amount of you, right? My invitation is this, is that after today you would go and check out this movie. It is an impactful movie. It's a movie that speaks to a lot of different things. And today we're going to look at justice and mercy and what, is it to, what does it mean to live inside of that. But don't worry, if you haven't seen the movie, we're going to take a look at the trailer. So sit back, enjoy your popcorn, and watch this trailer. Tell me everything that happened. 
first time I visited death row, I wasn't expecting to meet somebody the same age as me. From a neighborhood just like ours. Could have been me, mama. But what you're doing is gonna make a lot of people upset. You always taught me to fight for the people who need the help most. Your life is still meaningful, and I'm gonna do everything possible to keep them from taking it. You only know what you're into down here in Alabama when you're guilty from the moment you're born. God! Mr. McMillan. We done here. Mr. McMillan, please. I was just about to give up when I got a call from a Harvard lawyer looking to start a legal center for inmates on death row. I was in before he even offered me the job. You the lawyer? Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for driving all the way out here. Most lawyers barely make time to call. I can't believe you talked to all my people and said you gonna fight for me. I did. That mean a lot. If you go digging in those wounds, you're gonna be making a lot of people very unhappy. When people care about a thing that much, they'll do anything to get what they want. When I first learned about all this, it was like looking at a river full of drowning people and not having any way of helping them. You ain't quitting, is you? No, sir. Each of us is more than the worst thing that we've ever done. I know what it's like to be in the shadows. It's my dad. He did nothing wrong. It's never too late for justice. You're the only one kid enough to fight for me. If we can look at ourselves closely, we can change this world for the better. We all need grace. We all need mercy. Amen. I got my truth back. You gave that to me. And ain't nobody gonna take that from us. Today we're gonna look at a movie. It talks a lot about justice and mercy. And what we're gonna see is this. That this conversation, it's about all of us. It's about all of us. That ultimately, as we walk into this movie and as the movie demonstrates a lot of different themes and a lot of different conversations, what we're going to see is justice and mercy and grace in running into a conversation like this. It's about all of us. What I recognize is this conversation, this kind of movie, this type of conversation can bring a lot of different thoughts to a lot of different places, right? Can bring up a lot of tensions or can bring up a lot of different conversations underneath the surface. My, my encouragement to you is this, is that you would allow God to maybe speak into your heart in the areas that maybe it's the hardest or the most controversial or the most tension-filled. And as we walk through this movie, what I love about this movie is this, is that they do a fantastic job at creating a gospel-centered theme of justice and mercy and of grace. That Brian Stevenson, the main character of this story, is actually a follower of Christ. And he is a lawyer studying at Harvard. And when he gets done with his studies at Harvard, he actually ends up going down to Georgia for an internship. And he jumps into meeting with inmates on death row. And inside of that experience, as he meets with numerous different inmates, he starts to figure out a little bit about them. 
He starts to learn their story, starts to hear their heart, starts to hear what's going on. And he's shocked to find out that there's a lot of similarities that he has with these men that are in death row. And all of a sudden, he gains a passion for what it would look like to fight for the underprivileged, to fight for those that are being served unjustly, for those that maybe are racially minorities. And he starts to get a passion for this, and he actually ends up going to Montgomery, Alabama, and starting an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative, where the primary goal is to serve those that are underprivileged, that are incarcerated, that just can't afford it. And he starts to jump into the prisons locally to meet those that are incarcerated. And what he learns is that many of them either were not afforded the opportunity for someone to come alongside of them to fight for justice or they just can't afford it. What he learns in the process, there's a lot of assumptions that were made, maybe even judgments that were made regarding things. What you need to know is this movie takes place in the late 1980s in the South in Alabama where the remnants of the civil rights movement and all that was fought for there are still very much a part of the culture. Where segregation, racial differences, intentions still existed. And so as Brian Stevenson, who is a graduate of Harvard, goes down to start meeting with these men on death row and start to align and connect his life to helping them, they start to push back a little bit because he doesn't know what he's in for. He doesn't know what it's like. He doesn't understand what they're navigating, and yet he keeps running into it. And the first man that he meets is a man named Walter. Walter McMillan. Walter was charged with killing a teenage white girl at a laundromat. All the evidence and all the witnesses pointed towards his innocence, and yet they locked him up, put him on death row a year before his trial. And when Brian meets Walter, his hope and his desire is that he would have a connecting point with him to be able to help him. He goes in with the hope and with the in incentive to try to just connect with him to build trust. And this is what takes place. Take a look at this scene. Rich boy from Harvard, you don't know what it is down here when you're guilty from the moment you're born. And you can buddy up with these white folks and make them laugh and try to make them like you, whatever that is. And you say, yes, sir, no, man. But when it's your turn, they ain't got to have no fingerprints, no evidence. And the only witness they got made the whole thing up. And none of that matter when all y'all think is, is I look like a man who could kill somebody. That's not what I think. You know how many people been freed from Alabama death row? None.
What make you think you're gonna change that? I ain't doing this shit again. God. Mr. McMillan. We done here. Mr. McMillan, please. I'm here to help. Brian walks into that scenario trying to work for the underprivileged, the poor, the discriminated, the incarcerated. And inside of that setting, what tended to often be the case was there was a lot of racial discrimination taking place. And Brian has a fascinating, or sorry, Walter has a fascinating line inside of that scene. He said something to the effect that you don't know what it's like to be guilty from the moment you are born. What does he mean by that? So I think Brian, when he heard that, maybe it dawned in him that he had to connect at a different level with Walter. There was something going on inside of the setting that Walter grew up in, inside of the setting and the moment that Walter was born into and lived life through that created this kind of thing. I think first when Walter said that, guilty from the moment you were born, what he maybe meant was the color of my skin determines my value, unfortunately. That the color of his skin and, and, and the color of who he is and his racial background and the ethnicity that he grew up in and the culture that he was around, maybe he thought and believed because of how he was treated, it determines value and worth. And what we see is this, that inside of God's story, every race, ethnicity, people group, culture is valued and worth equally. From the very beginning of God's story to the very end, diversity is a key part of it. We see in Genesis 1, 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. That in every people group, in every culture, in every race, in every ethnicity, in all diversity, from male to female to races, we were all created in the likeness of God. Which tells me this, that our God is wonderful, beautiful, and glorious beyond what we can even imagine. See, a number of people groups that surround our world right now gives us that beauty and that wonder. We see that jump at the front of the page, that at the beginning of God's story, diversity, the color of someone's skin is celebrated because it points to the creator who created them. And in its essence, we all carry the divine in us. And I, I was taught this in student ministry with kids and students, but I think it has the same undertones across racial and ethnic lines, that when you and I see someone, when you and I come upon someone, befriend someone, when we interact with someone, that we should first see they are made in the image of God. Not, I wonder what their background is. Not, they look different than me. Not, I'm not so sure about. But the beauty of being made in the image of God and the diversity that that brings should be our first thoughts. And it jumps off the page of God's story. Rebecca McLaughlin, she is a writer 
and she writes numerous of books. One of her uh, really good books that I've read is Secular Creed. I would invite you to read that. It's a short book. She says this, if the Bible is true, however, God didn't just make our souls, he made our bodies. He made black people and white people, Asian people and Latino people, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, all equally in his image. That God, yes, made our souls, made our spirits, made our emotions and mental capacities, all of that, but even more so, he made us physically. And he did it distinctly so that we would look different to celebrate what is inside of that. The story of God doesn't just begin with that, it also ends in celebration of that. Revelation 7, 9 What I love is it starts with God creating us and then it ends with us worshiping him for the beauty and the wonder of that. After this, I looked, John writes, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe and nation and people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. That at the end of God's story, diversity is celebrated. We are all standing in God's presence, brothers and sisters from every race, tribe, culture, and ethnicity, celebrating who God is and what he's done for us. That determining value and worth based off the color of someone's skin doesn't align with God's story and the biblical narrative. But I think secondly especially in the setting that Walter grew up in, especially in the South during this time, what he meant was not just figurative, but very literal. That guilty from the moment you're born, for him meant the color of someone's skin skin determines their guilt. The color of someone's skin determines their guilt. And I'll be honest, right? That this is a journey that even myself have had to go on as I run into people who look different than me. Because I think it's just natural for people groups, when we run into people who look different than us, we either, one, distance ourselves from them because it's just easier to do so, or sometimes we'll condemn just because they look different than us. And I think what Walter was saying is, Because of the color of his skin, it was really easy for people to just condemn and just place guilt on him because he looked like a man that could kill someone, looked like a guy that could do that. And based on the color of his skin, guilt was placed on him. And unfortunately, we have seen in our country's history racial injustice time after time, starting all the way back 150 years ago where slavery was a part of our country's history and played out for years and years and years to just 60 years ago where civil rights movements took place and fight for equality and fight for the inclusion of all people groups, no matter the color of your skin, was a conversation happening. All the way to even a few years ago where the tensions were brought to the surface again and conversations sparked again. What does it look like for us to celebrate diversity and equality inside of that conversation? And in the course of the last several years, I actually have a a buddy of mine who I worked with back at the Norton campus. He ended up becoming a pastor up in the Cleveland area. I love him to death. 
He loves sports. We connected on that. He happens to be black. And I called him in the midst of all the tension that was taking place in 2020. And I just said, hey, just talk to me. What are your thoughts? What are you processing? What's going on in your mind? And it opened my eyes beyond what I could even express to you right now, the things that he said. And I am deeply thankful for the conversation that he had with me. Because he mentioned things from personally experiencing racism, personally experiencing people innocently having comments or gestures that were racist and made him feel less than. And then I started talking to him about what was going on and what was surfacing. And I said, you know, it feels like it's hard for me to grapple with this because slavery is so long ago and this should be something of the past and history. And he said, hold on, Joel. He said, don't you realize that we're only three generations removed from slavery? We're only one generation removed from the civil rights movements. And that opened up my eyes. That this, this is not just a conversation of the past and we just got to shove it back there and it happened back there and let's just not talk about it. What it opened my eyes to was this, that even though I may not be or see myself as a problem inside of the conversation, I will never understand what it is to live in this country as a black man or woman based on the history of this country. I cannot even begin to put my feet in someone's shoes whose parents experienced the civil rights movement or whose great-grandparents may have been enslaved. I can't begin to understand when Walter says, guilty from the moment I'm born, what that resonates with for so many people. And so as we talk about this conversation, as much as we want to believe it's yesterday's issue, we can't remove the fact that we're not that far removed from these atrocities happening. And there's still a lot of steps that need to take place. And I believe that one of the greatest places they can start taking place in is the church, where God's story actually gives the perspective of equality across races and cultures and ethnicities. The place where it needs to start is embedded in the gospel because the gospel is what gives weight to any movement of social justice across race. The gospel is the footing for this kind of conversation to take place. Rebecca McLaughlin would say this inside of her book. Ultimately, black lives matter, not because progressive people have told us so. Now listen, I understand that when I say that, some of us have a lot of thoughts that run through our minds. We as a church do not align with or agree with the organization Black Lives Matter. It's not what we're saying. But hold on to what Rebecca says here. But because the equal value of every human, regardless of race, walks off the pages of Scripture with the sound of a trumpet, Black Lives Matter because Jesus says so. And so for the fight for equality, it has to start with Jesus has to start with the conversation that he has throughout his scripture and how we see him run into different people groups across the pages of scripture. That inside of this, we have to realize the color of someone's skin does not determine their value or worth. 
And the reality is this, Jesus ends up telling us that we all matter. Well, how? How does he tell us that? How does he give way to that? What I love about this movie is it chronicles not just the triumphs of Brian Stevenson's career, but really the challenges and the setbacks. From the moment that Brian meets Walter, and we're going to go back to a scene that kind of highlights some of this, but there is some tension. Walter pushes back. He doesn't think Brian's going to be able to help him until it clicks in that Brian is there for him. Not just his money, not just fame, but to help this man out. And Brian keeps going back and he keeps going back and he keeps going back. And through the setbacks and the challenges, he ends up being able to walk through the court system to prove that this man was purely innocent, had nothing to do with this crime, that he was unjustly put into prison and no one asked questions. And there's a scene at the very end of the movie, we're going to jump all the way to the end, where Brian speaks to what he learned in the process. And I think it's absolutely beautiful. So take a look at this video. We're going to learn the lesson with Brian. I came out of law school with grand ideas in my mind about how to change the world. But Mr. McMillan made me realize we can't change the world with only ideas in our minds. We need conviction in our hearts. This man taught me how to stay hopeful because I now know that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Hope allows us to push forward even when the truth is distorted by the people in power. It allows us to stand up when they tell us to sit down and to speak when they say be quiet. Through this work, I've learned that each of us is more than the worst thing that we've ever done. That the opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. That the character of our nation isn't reflected in how we treat the rich and the privileged, but how we treat the poor, the disfavored, and condemned. Our system has taken more away from this innocent man than it has the power to give back. But I believe if each of us can follow his lead, we can change this world for the better. If we can look at ourselves closely and honestly, I believe we will see that we all need justice. We all need mercy, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Thank you. I love the line where he says, all of us need justice. All of us need mercy. And I think what he was getting at is we all need that in day-to-day, of course, but spiritually, We all need that. Because here's the reality. We are all guilty, but not because of our skin color, not because of our financial status, not because of our position in this world. We are guilty because of the sin in our hearts. And we are in need of a Savior, and that Savior came 
in the midst of our guilt, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our mess to save us. And he put on the cross the greatest demonstration of justice and mercy to ever exist. Luke 4 gives us this. Luke 4, 18 through 19. We've read this passage in months previous. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is preaching this in the temple in Nazareth. And what they are thinking is, it's the year of the Lord's favor. And so debts are paid, slaves are released, there is joy to be had, things are happening. But what he was saying is this, I have come, no matter your status, no matter your race, ethnicity, no matter where you're from, to free you from the most guilt-ridden thing, which is your sin. It is the thing that holds you at a distance from me. It's the thing that imprisons you. It's the thing that handcuffs you. It's the thing that spiritually makes you dead. It's your sin. And Jesus, in that moment, was sharing with everyone in that setting that I have come to free you, but not just to free one people group. I'm not just a savior for the Jews, but I'm a savior for the Gentiles as well, and I've come for all. And what Jesus was illustrating and demonstrating and sharing not everybody was thrilled with. Because in that day, Jews and Gentiles were who sat across the line. And Jesus said, I've come for everybody. The reality is this, that we should be deeply encouraged today. Because the reality is this conversation with justice and mercy starts with the reality that Jesus took that step towards us to free us. Make it personal. Make it personal a little bit. Because sometimes we can get in these conversations and we can think it's someone else's problem or it's not a problem for me or it's not a conversation I need to have. But what if Jesus wants to introduce to you a conversation through this conversation? What if he wants to run into your life in a unique way today? Because the reality of what Jesus did on the cross wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to him that he would have to bear the justice, the wrath of God for our sins so that we could freely walk, so that we could freely enjoy his life because he rose again. What Jesus did on the cross is he meshed justice and mercy perfectly. He paid for our sins. And when you believe in him, he gives you life. The reality is this, for all of us, what Walter was saying is all but true. Not for the reasons he was saying it, but for the reasons that you and I understand it spiritually. We need someone in our lives to fight for justice, fight for mercy, because you and I cannot do it on our own. And Jesus was that for us. So what if this morning, before we get into some application stuff, what if you were to make that personal by saying yes to Jesus? 
recognizing that in your heart there is sin. Recognizing that in your heart you have run the opposite direction of Jesus, the opposite direction of God in, in a relationship with Him. And what if today you were to recognize Jesus as your Savior for the first time? Recognizing Him as the one who's paid for all of our sins and disadvantaged Himself so that we could be advantaged and have life. Because for some of us, that's where it starts. Actually, for all of us, that's where it starts. It's by connecting this story and this conversation to the reality that Jesus has done for us spiritually what we could not do for ourselves, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from. And it gives us a perspective of how to make this conversation personal also. That we need to make it personal by saying yes to Jesus. But we also, out of that, need to make it personal by saying yes to justice. And running into the hard conversations that you don't want to have around the dinner table with Uncle Freddie at Thanksgiving. That you don't want to have because it gets in the way of comfortability. Because we don't want to have because it's just not in front of us. Micah 6.8 gives us a great perspective of how to run into justice and mercy. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? And the two kind of words that you hone in on in that passage is justice and mercy, and yet do that humbly. The word justice in the Hebrew means mishpat, means blessed society God is creating. Tim Keller one of my favorite authors and pastors, would say this about mishpat. It's giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection. Right? Giving people what they are due, whether punishment, correction, or protection inside of it. And then mercy, hasad, is the Hebrew word. means to disadvantage yourself so others can thrive. Jesus took upon himself the punishment that you and I were due. And in place, disadvantaged himself so that we could have life. What would it look like to run into this conversation and say, Lord, what do you have for me inside of this? I receive that, understanding that, but also where are you going to push me into when it comes to justice and mercy playing out in my life? And Brian, what I love about Brian, who's a follower of Christ, and you see that a little bit in the movie, but if you listen to some of his TED Talks or interviews, you'll hear more about that. He gets up close and personal with the conversation. That the way to play out justice and mercy inside of Brian's mind is proximity. He would say there's power to proximity. And early in the story, after Brian meets with Walter, Walter pushes him aside. You see it. He left the room. He said, get me out of here. You get out of here. You don't understand. Brian decided after that, I'm going to go meet with his family. Just see the reception and the interaction Brian has as he drives up to his family. 
You the lawyer? Yes, ma'am. My name is Brian Stevenson. I'm Johnny D's wife, Minnie. Pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Thank you so much for driving all the way out here. Most lawyers barely make time to call. Uh, this is our youngest son, John, a baby girl, Jackie. I hope you don't mind a few of our neighbors stop by to hear what you got to say. Oh, just a few? <laughs> Come on, you'll be all right. Okay. What we end up seeing in that scene is Brian gets up close and personal. He decides to get to know the family, decides to get to know the neighbors, decides to get to know Walter's immediate friends and learns a lot. Here's what Brian has to say about proximity. He would say this, Proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. The true measure, as you saw in the scenes before, he says this, of the character, sorry, go back. I didn't finish reading that. Sorry, Ella, I messed you up. The, measure, the true measure of the character of our society cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and respected among us. But rather, if you want to go to the next slide, the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. Because I think the reality is this. When you kind of remove yourself a little bit, you realize that all of us were there. We were all there before Jesus. And what he is trying to do is when you get proximate with people, those that don't look like you, those that don't do like you, those that maybe have a different culture than you, you learn very quickly that you have more in common than you might think. And I think he has a powerful line here that I wonder if it begs to be true about us also. That the character of our church is in how we treat the unborn and the single mother. How we treat the incarcerated and the condemned. How we treat the orphan and the widow. How we treat the poor and the homeless. The racial and ethnically diverse. The mentally and physically disabled. But I wonder if the character isn't so much in how we treat the, the rich, respected, the privileged, but in how we treat those that are underprivileged, that are discriminated, that don't have the advantage. I think more would be said about our church in that than the opposite. And so what I want to do is leave us with just four simple words that I stole from our Power Kids coordinator, Heather Adenkunle. I stole them. It's not mine. It's hers. Because here's the reality. As I challenge us, I also want to say this. I respect you. This conversation, you cannot just see it as an invitation to a challenge, but I actually deeply respect all of you in this room. Because some of you are fighting for injustices in very small and unknown ways. Some of you are foster parents. Some of you have walked into kids' lives and taken a hold of them in a unique way. Some of you are fighting for the unborn you're making a case for what it would look like to have the sanctity of life. Some of you are in law enforcement. Thank you so much for putting your life on the line and you're fighting for justice, protection inside of our community. 
Some of you are just making a difference by running into the poverty of our community. Some of you are making a difference by fixing bikes for kids that have no other mode of transportation in an arena where they don't have much resources for that either. I look across this room and I don't think this conversation is something where I have to light a fire under your butt and see it go. But rather, what if it was a conversation to remind us? To remind us that when Jesus came, he came fighting for justice and mercy through the good news of him dying on the cross and rising again, and he gave us the same privilege to go with him and to run into the really hard conversations, to run into the really unforeseen things, to run into the messes, because he reminds me of this, that when he left his disciples, he said, I'm not leaving you alone, I'm leaving you with my spirit. And that the same spirit that is of Jesus is with us to be encouraged and comforted and to run into hard conversations, which I know this can be for some of us. So what if we ask the spirit to lead us in four ways? The first way I'd write down is this, look, look. You might be like, where, right? Not so much you, but inviting God to look at your heart. Psalm 139 tells me this, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. That what if this conversation didn't start with, look out there, we got to get going on some things that we got to do, but look in here. Asking God to look at our hearts to reveal maybe what's going on in our hearts. Maybe there's things underneath the surface that is distancing ourselves from these conversations or distancing ourselves from situations or we want to sit inside of comfortability. When, God, when you ask God to start looking at your heart, start searching your heart, he's going to bring to the surface some things that are uncomfortable, but it starts there. Starts by asking, what's your will? What's your kingdom about? How do we run into that? This is a humbling first process. Because the more I ask God to search, the more he reveals. The more he reveals, the more grimy it gets sometimes. And yet, the more grimy it gets, the more he loves to redeem. It's never too late. It's never too late to ask God to look at your heart. It's never too late to ask God to reveal in your heart. Like, Joel, but I've done that before. I'm doing Why don't you go into tomorrow and just ask? It might just be things that he wants to stir up a conversation about. And it doesn't mean you're doing it all wrong. It doesn't mean that shame on you. What it means is maybe he wants to do more in your life. Because secondly, is us listening. Is us listening right? God, look at my heart. You listen. You listen as you ask him to look. Psalm 139 again, verse 24 says, see if there is any offensive way in me, lead me in the way of everlasting. That as we listen, we ask God to reveal to me, is there any way in my heart that's offensive to you? Is there anything that I'm pushing to the side? Is there any conversation that I am not willing to have? Is there any way I'm not loving well enough? Listen, just ask God to look at your heart and see what he says about how you interact in your own home. Just start there. Inside the four walls can be the most revealing about your heart. 
Before we start out here, let's start in there. We start, we start with these big conversations. Start with the small ones. Maybe there's things God wants to reveal in your heart that are offensive to Him and maybe others in the process. Not for the sake of making you feel guilty and shameful and woe is me, but for the sake of redeeming and running into loving Him and others more. The yuckier it gets, the more He loves to redeem. And the more He redeems, the more He refines. The more He refines, the more you and I run into loving as He loved us first doesn't just stop there. As we listen, we have to be willing to learn. We have to be willing to learn. And this is asking God to break me. As I listen and learn, Father, break my heart for what breaks yours. This is what Jesus would say in Matthew, if you want to go to the next couple slides here. Matthew 16, 25, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Asking God to break your heart most likely will put your life on the line. Most likely will pull you out of the comfort, will most likely pull you out into where he wants you, where his kingdom is moving. It's uncomfortable. I get it. I get for some of us, we have conversations running through our head right now about the movie, about the conversation we're in, and we're wondering... Why would I even go there? And yet, what if God wants to move you into somewhere that he wants to use you for? Because here's the reality about following Jesus. Following Jesus is not about the comfortability of my situation, but the redemption of someone else's situation. When you said yes to Jesus, it is not about your life getting more comfortable. Actually, the opposite should happen. It should get more uncomfortable because you're running into the mess and proximity of others for the sake of them experiencing the grace and mercy and justice of Jesus on the cross. And that gets messy. Listen, we're doing updates in this room, and it's beautiful, and it's going to look awesome. We're going to make it look pristine, sound system, all that good stuff. That is not an image of what it means to run into the spiritual side of people's lives. It's messy. What you see up here is more like what you're going to experience when you learn and allow God to break your hearts. It's going to get messy. Because here's the reality. I got a few minutes. Here's the reality. In our country, there's some staggering numbers. That if you just were to ask God to break me and to learn in that process, see where he would take it. Because in our country, 2.3 million people are incarcerated or on probation currently. There's roughly 100,000 overdose deaths in our country over the course of a year. Over the course of 2021, there was almost 1 million abortions that took place inside of our country. There's almost 40 million people in poverty right now in our country in over this number is staggering but it is a fraction of what the world's number is in light of this over 400,000 children are in the foster care system without a family in our country that is a fraction of the millions and millions of kids across the world that don't have a home are currently homeless have nowhere to go 
And those numbers, you can just keep going as you travel across the world. Even in our own community, we cannot be blind to the realities of the messiness. That even in our own community, the community of 44203, where Barberton sits, there is an addiction crisis that has been going on for the past decade. Ohio has been one of the top-ranked overdose states. I think it ranks as number two back in 2018. Summit County specifically, Barberton is one of the worst areas for it. We are known across the country for this. It should break our hearts. I live around it. I see it. Not just that. We see poverty even in our community. Whether it's homelessness or just the mere fact I can't put food on the table or I'm struggling to have enough resources. And inside of all of those conversations plays on our community. Even, in my humble opinion, there can be racial disparity in our community. No one entity, person, or place is guilty. But we have to ask, does it exist? The reality is this. When you start to ask God to break your heart, it brings to the surface really messy things. But as you get closer and you learn, you start to learn they're not as different as I th thought they were. And as you learn, the hope is it pushes you to love. That you start asking, Father, move me. Move me into this. Brian Stevenson would say this, we can't change the world with only ideas in our minds, but conviction in our hearts. What would it look like to move into someone's life and give them hope? We all need justice, we all need mercy, we all need grace. What would it look like to get close up and personal inside of these conversations to allow these conversations to take place, not for the sake of making a point or changing everything, but for the sake of Jesus being on display. For the sake of justice and mercy that's been impacted in our own lives the sake of that moving into others' lives. Here's the reality. I hope, I hope we don't just leave here and say, that was my opinion or that was my opinion and go. You don't have to agree with everything I say up here to come here. It's the beauty of our church, I hope. But in the same token, my encouragement would be, if nothing else, this week asking God to look at your heart, that you would listen, you would learn, and that God would move you in love. For the sake of our comfortability, no. Y'all gonna get uncomfortable. For the sake of grace and mercy flowing from the church of Jesus into the community that is lost and looking for hope, so as the worship team comes up, Father, we thank you that you didn't leave us. You didn't leave us on the outskirts. 
You did not leave us out. You came after us. Thank you for disadvantaging yourself through Jesus so that we could have life. And Father, as we sit here, would you and your spirit just hover over this room? This is a conversation that carries a lot of weight, Father, and I feel it. I think others do. But Father, would you not allow us to leave and just say we did church? We did a service. We talked about something we don't talk around the Thanksgiving table about and we move on. But Father, would you help us see what you see? Help it strike a chord in our hearts, Father. Father, would you encourage us to be your hands and feet? Father, would your spirit comfort us to know that we are loved, saved, and cared for, and that there are so many opportunities to dispense that upon others. Would you encourage us to see our neighbors, see our family? Would you encourage us to see our community? Would you encourage us to run into the places that are hard for us to run into. Thank you for things like Common Threads and the bike shop at Van Buren Homes. Thank you for what we see happening across our community, for the efforts to run into helping. Thank you for people in here who are putting their life on the line. Father, would you encourage them to walk into this week? and make it about you, see the opportunity that they have to make a difference. Thank you for who you are and all that you do. Pray this in your name.